Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast, talking about chapter 9.1. Is it that he is a homosexual? Is that what George is describing about uh, Edward? I guess that it was a different time, and it was so taboo that he can't just straight say it, you know? Got to beat around the bush. And it would have been quite the scandal, I suppose. The internet tells us, says Swim. Both George Moore and W.B. Yeats have suggested that he was a celibate homosexual. In a novel and several short stories, Moore created a series of repressed gay men who were thinly disguised versions of Edward Martin. Tecrific says, yes, this is my understanding too. He was very Catholic and repressed. He could have been a homosexual, but also asexual. I don't think that notion was around at the time, but maybe he wasn't drawn to anything except his aesthetic and artistic ideals. Could be. Could be. Um, either way, you got to feel for you know, sympathy for someone who's got to repress themselves for decades, years, a lifetime. What a horrible way to go about life. Um... But also, in today's uh, what am I doing here? Sorry, I'm trying to find my place in the book at the same time. Uh, in in today's day and age, it's not even really, you know, the scandal's gone, the taboo is gone. It's not that interesting of a plot point if a character is gay or not gay. Um. But I guess, yeah, in this time and place, it was quite the secret. Uh, let's, keep, let's keep reading. Edward was in his tower and wandering about the park. I thought how he had gone back to his original self since his mother's death. The schoolboy was a Republican, but the church is not friendly to free thought, and the prestige of his mother's authority had prevented him from taking any active part in nationalist politics during her... Lifetime. The wild heather, I said, is breaking out again, and I stopped in my walk so that I might think how wonderful all this was. The craving for independence of a somewhat timid nature, all always held back, never being able to cast out of the mouth the bit that had been placed in it. These weak, ambiguous natures lend themselves so much more to literature and indeed to friendship than the stronger who follow their own inst- who follow their own instincts thinking always with their own brains they get what they want the others get nothing but the weak men are the more interesting they excite our sentiments our pity and without pity man may not live then a little weary of thinking of edward my thoughts turned to yeats he had come to tillyra from cool a few days before and had read us the shadowy waters a poem that he had been working on for more than seven years, using it as a receptacle or storehouse for all the fancies that had crossed his mind during that time, and these were so numerous that the pirate ship ranging the shadowy waters came to us laden to the gunwale with fomorians beaked and unbeaked, spirits of good and evil of various repute, and so far as we could understand the poem, these accompanied a metaphysical pirate of ancient Ireland cruising in the unknown waters of the North Sea. 
in search of some ultimate kingdom, we admitted to Yeats, Edward and I, that no audience would be able to discover the story of the play, and we confessed ourselves among the baffled that would sit bewildered and go out raging against the poet. Our criticism did not appear to surprise Yeats. He seemed to realise that he had knotted and entangled his skein to no remedy short of breaking some of the threads would avail, and he eagerly accepted my proposal to go over to Cool to talk out the poem with him, and to redeem it if possible from the Fomorians. He would regret their picturesque appearance, but could I get rid of them without losing the poetical passages? He would not like the words, poetical passages, I should have written beautiful verses. Looking up at the ivied embrasure of the tower, where Edward was undergoing the degradation of fancying himself a lover so that he might write the big scene between Jasper and Millicent at the end of the third act, I said he will not come out of that tower until dinner time, so I may as well ride over to Cool and try what can be done. But the job Yeats has set me is a difficult one. Away I went on my bicycle up and down along the switchback road, trying to arrive at some definite idea regarding Fomorians, and thinking as I rode up the long drive that perhaps Yeats might not be at home, and that to return to Tillyra without meeting the Fomorians would be like riding home from hunting after a blank day. The servant told me that he had gone for one of his constitutionals and would be found about the lake, the fabled woods of cool, a thick hazel coverts with tall trees here and there, but the paths are easy to follow, and turning out of one of these into the open, I came upon a a tall black figure standing at the edge of the lake, wearing a cloak which fell in straight folds to his knees, looking like a great umbrella forgotten by some picnic party. I've come to relieve you of Fomorians, and when they've been flung into the waters, we must find some simple and suggestive anecdote. Now, Yeats, I'm listening. As he proceeded to unfold his dreams to me, I perceived that we were inside a prison house with all the doors locked and windows barred. The chimney is stopped, I said, but a brick seems loose in that corner, perhaps by scraping... We scraped a little while, but very soon a poetical passage turned the edge of my chisel like a lump of granite, and Yeats said, I can't sacrifice that. Well, let's, let us try the left-hand corner, and after scraping for some time, we met another poetical passage. Well, let us try one of the titles under the bed. We might scrape away into some drain which will lead us out. But after searching for a loose tile for an hour and finding none all proving more firmly cemented than any reader would think for, the task of getting Yeats (coughs) out of prison house, which he had ingeniously built about himself, began to grow wearisome, and my thoughts wandered from the Fomorians to the autumn landscape, full of wonderful silence and colour, and I begged Yeats to admire with me the still lake filled with broad shadow of the hill and the ghostly moon high up in the pale evening, looking down upon a drift of rose-coloured clouds, a reed growing some yards from the shore threw its slender shadow to our feet, and it seemed to me that we could do nothing better than watch the landscape fixed in the lake as in a mirror. But Yeats's mind was whirling with Fomorians, and he strove to engage my attention with a new scheme of reconstruction he had already proposed, and I had rejected so many that this last one was undis- 
indistinguishable in my brain from those which had preceded it, and his febrile and somewhat hysterical imagination, excited as if by a drug, set him talking, and so volubly that I could not help thinking of the, of the old gentleman that Yeats had frightened when he was staying last at Tillyra. The old gentleman had come down in the morning, pale and tired after a sleepless night, complaining that he had been dreaming of Neptune and surging waves. Last night, said Yeats, looking up gloomily from his breakfast, I felt a great deal of aridness in my nature and need of moisture, and was waking, was making most tremendous invocations with water, and am not surprised that they should have affected the adjoining room. The old gentleman <clears throat> leaned back in his chair, terror-stricken, and taking Edward aside after breakfast, he said to him, a Finnish sorcerer, he has Finnish blood in him, some Finnish ancestor about a thousand years ago, and with the old gentleman's words in my head, I scrutinized my friend's... <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. Scrutinized my friend's hands and face, thinking them strangely dark for Ireland, but there are Celts with hair of oriental blackness and skins dyed with oriental yellow. All the same, the gentleman's reading of Yeats's prehistoric ancestry seemed to me like an intuition. His black hair and yellow skin were perhaps accidental, or they might be atavisms. I was not the recurrence, it was not the recurrence of an, any Finnish strain of a thousand years ago that tempted me to believe in a strain of oriental blood. It was his subtle metaphysical mind, so unlike anything I'd ever met in a European, but which I had once met in an oriental years ago in West Kensington, in a back drawing room, lecturing to groups of women, an Indian of slender body and refined face, of a being whose ancestry were weaving metaphysical arguments when painted savages proud in the forests of britain and ireland he seemed to be speaking out of a long metaphysical ancestry unpremeditated speech flowed like silk from a spool leading me through the labyrinth of the subconscious higher and higher seemingly towards some daylight finer than had ever appeared in the valleys of which i was clambering hurriedly lest i should lose the thread that led me on and on we went, until at last it seemed to me that I stood among the clouds. Clouds filled the valley beneath me, and about me were wide spaces and no horizon anywhere. Only space, and in the midst of this space, light, breaking through the clouds above me, waxing every moment to an interest, intenser day. And every moment the Indian's voice seemed to lead me higher, and every moment it seemed that I could follow it no longer. The homely earth that I knew had faded, and I waited expectant among the peaks until at last, taken with a sudden fear that if I lingered any longer I might never see again a cottage at the end of an embowered lane, I started to, started to my feet and fled. But the five minutes I had spent in that drawing room in West Kensington were not forgotten, and now, by the side of the lake, hearing Yeats explain the meaning of his metaphysical pirate afloat on northern waters, it seemed to me that I was listening again to my Indian. Again I found myself raised above the earth into the clouds. Once more the light was playing round me, lambent light ray like rays, crossing and recrossing, waxing and waning until I cried out, I'm breathing too fine air for my lungs. Let me go back. And sitting down on a rock, I began to talk of the fish in the lake, asking Yeats if the autumn weather were not beautiful. 
saying anything that came into my head, for his thoughts were whirling too rapidly, and a moment was required for me to recover from a mental dizziness. In this moment of respite, without warning, I discovered myself thinking of a coachman washing his carriage in the mews, and when the coachman washes his carriage, a wheel is lifted from the ground, and it spins at the last, at the least touch of the mop, turning as fast as Yeats's mind, and for the same reason that neither is turning anything, I am alluding now to the last half hour spent with Yeats, talking about his poem and thinking of Yeats's mind like a wheel lifted from the ground. It was impossible for my thoughts not to veer round to Edward's slow mind, and to compare it to the creaking wheel of an ox wagon. If one could only combine these two, one is intelligent without temperament to sustain it, the other is a temperament without an intellect to guide it, and I reflected how provokingly nature separates qualities which are essential one to the other, and there being food for reflection in this thought, I began to regret Yeats's presence. Very soon his mind will begin to whirl again. The slightest touch, I said, of the coachman's mop will set it going, so I had better remain silent. It was then that I forgot Yeats and Edwards and everything else in the delight caused by a great clamour of wings and the slowy, pl snowy plumage of thirty-six great birds rushing down the lake, striving to rise from its surface. At last... Their wings caught the air, and after floating about the lake, they settled in a distant corner where they thought they could rest undisturbed. Thirty-six swans rising out of a lake and floating around it, settling down in it, is an unusual sight. It conveys a suggestion of fairyland, perhaps because thirty-six wild swans are so different from the silly china swan, which sometimes floats and hisses in melancholy wideness up and down a stone basin. <clears throat> Excuse me. That is all we know of swans, all I knew until the thirty-six roses out of the hushed lake at our feet and prompted me to turn to Yeats, saying, You're writing your poem in its natural atmosphere, to avoid talking about the poem again. Because I'm always interested in natural things, I begged him to tell me whence this flock had come and if they were really wild swans, and he told me that they were descended originally from a pair of tame swans who had reacquired their power of flight and that the thirty-six flew backwards and forwards from Cool to Lochcuta, venturing further, visiting many of the lakes of Galloway and Mayo, but always returning in the autumn to Cool. We struck across the meadows to avoid the corner of the lake where the swans had settled in, and Yeats proposed another scheme for the reconstruction of his poem, and it absorbed him so utterly that he could feel no interest in the smell of burning weeds, redolent of autumn coming from an adjoining field, yet it trailed along the damp meadows, rising into the dry air until it seemed a pity to trouble about a poem when nature provided one so beautiful for our entertainment, incense of woods and faint colours and every colour and every odour in accordance with my mood. How pathetic the long willow leaves seemed to me as they floated on the lake, and I wondered, for there was not a wind in the branches, so why had they fallen? Yeats said he would row me across, thereby saving a long walk, enabling us to get to Tilura an hour sooner than if we followed the lake's edge. Remember it was still day, though the moon shed a light down the vague water, but when we reached the other side, the sky had darkened and it was neither daytime or nighttime. The fields stretched out dim and solitary and grey, 
and seeing cattle moving mysteriously in the shadows, I thought of the extraordinary oneness of things, the cattle being a little nearer to the earth than we, a little farther than the rocks, and I begged of Yeats to admire the mystery, but he could not meditate. He was still among the Fomorians, and we scrambled through some hawthorns over a ruined wall, I thinking of the time when masons were building that wall, and how quaint the little leaves of the hawthorns were, yellow as gold, fluttering from their stems. A ruined country, I said, wilderness and weed. Yeats knew the paths through the hazel woods, and talking of the pirate, we struck through the open spaces decorated with here and there a thorn tree and much drooping bracken, penetrating into the silence of the blood-red beeches, startled a little when a squirrel cracked a nut in the branch above us and the broken shells fell at our feet. I thought there were no squirrels in Ireland. Twenty years ago there was none, but somebody introduced a pair into Wexford and gradually they have spread all over Ireland. This and no more would he tell me, and as we fell into another broad path where hazels grew on either side, it seemed to me that I should have walked across, walked through those woods that evening with some quiet woman talking of a long time ago, some love time which had grown distant, distinct in the mirror of the years, like the landscape in the quiet waters of the lake. But in life nothing is perfect, there are no perfect moments, or very few, and it seemed to me that I could no longer speak about Fomorians or pirates. Every combination had been tried, and my tired brain was fit for nothing but to muse on the beauty that was about about me. The drift of clouds seen through the branches when I raised my head, but Yeats would not raise his eyes. He walked, his eyes fixed on the ground, still intent upon discovering some scheme of recomposition which would allow him to write his poem without much loss of the original text, and before we reached the end of the alley, he delivered, he delivered himself of many new arrangements, none of which it was possible for me to advise him to adopt. It differing none, no wise from the half a dozen which had preceded it, and in despair I ran over the short story again, just as one might run one's fingers down the keys of a piano, with this result that in a hollow of the sleepy road which we were following, he need, agreed to abandon the Fomorians and discussing the half of apple wood which could be not abandoned. We trudged on, myself held at gaze by the stern line of the Buran Mountains showing on our left and the moon high above the woods of Tillyra. How much agreed, how much, sorry, more interesting all this is than his pirate I thought, a shadowy form passed us now, and then a peasant returning from his work, his coat slung over his shoulder, a cow wandering in front of a girl who curtsied and drew her shawl over her head as she passed us. Yes, that will do, Yeats answered. I shall lose a good many beautiful verses, but I suppose it can't be helped, only I don't like your ending. The poem has since those days been reconstructed many times by Yeats, but he was always retained the original ending, which is after that after the massacre of the crew of the merchant galley. The queen who lies under the canopy when the vessel is boarded is forced by spells shed from the strings of a harp made of apple wood into a love so overwhelming for the pirate that she consents to follow him in his quest and of the ultimate kingdom in the realms of the pole. 
My ending was that her fancy for the pirate should cool before his determination to go northward, and that he should bid her step over the bulwarks into the merchant galley where the pirates were drinking yellow ale and then cutting the ropes which lashed the vessel together. He should hoist a sail and go away northward, but Yeats said it would be a disgraceful act to send a beautiful woman to drink yellow ale with a drunken crew in a hold of a vessel. So did we argue as we went towards Tilra. The huge castle now showing aloft among the trees, a light still burning in the ivied embrasure where Edward sat struggling with the love story of Jasper and Millicent. He too is an inferior artist. He will not yield himself to the love story. Both of these men, in different ways, put their personal feelings in front of their work. They are both subaltern souls. And my thoughts turned from them to contemplate the huge pile which Edward's Norman ancestor had built in a hollow. Why in a hollow? I asked myself, for these Norman castles are generally built from hillside to hillside and were evidently intended to overawe the country, the castles lending each other aid when wild hordes of Celts descended from the Buran Mountains, and when these raids ceased, probably in the 17th century, the castle's keep was turned into stables, and a modern house run up alongside of the central tower. Ireland is covered with ruins from the 5th to the 18th century. A land of ruin and weed, I said, and began to dream again a novel that I had relinquished years ago in the temple, till rooks rising in thousands from the beech trees interrupted my thoughts. We'd better go into this wood, I said. Our shadows will seem to Edward from his casement window. Somewhat critical, Yeats answered, and we turned aside to talk of the tale of a town Yeats anxious to know from me if there was any chance of Edward's being able to complete it by himself and if he would accept any of the modifications I had suggested. And that's the end of the chapter. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.